Let's pray. Father, it is so good just to worship you this morning, to sing your praises, to see how beautiful you are, to experience the mercy and the grace that you have offered to us. We come as sinners this morning, and yet sinners who have been forgiven by your mercy, by the blood of Christ. We need to be fed by you. We need to be strengthened by you. And I pray this morning as we come to your word that that you would feed us. That you would take your word and it would go deep into our hearts. That we would hear with our minds and our hearts. That our lives would be transformed. That we would become more like you. That that sword of the spirit would do its work to divide joints and marrow, soul and spirit to reveal our sin, to convict us of the ways that we need to change, and then to empower us to change. Father, we pray that any resistance that's in our hearts this morning, that you would remove, that you would enable us to respond to you. We're grateful that you've spoken. We're grateful that we are able to hear because of Christ, because of the promise and the hope of the Holy Spirit that dwells within us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 8. Um, 1 Samuel chapter 8. I've been studying, uh, just finished 1 Samuel in our Wednesday morning Bible study. Had a, just a good time going through this, this book. Um, seeing in narrative form the story of Israel unfold as their first king, and Saul's installed. and course, if you read through that, you see David and you see a man after God's own heart. You see men, real men who fail and make mistakes and yet are used by God. And we're going to look this morning at this section, this chapter in, in 1 Samuel chapter 8. I'm going to read the whole chapter. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of the firstborn son was Joel, and the name of the sec- his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba, yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations." But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them, according to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to, his, to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and to equip his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. 
He will take a tenth of your grain of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you will be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel and they said no. But there shall be a king over us, that we may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them to the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go every man to his city. I used this passage at the men's retreat this last year. We looked at it as an example of the way culture influences us. The way it influences the way we think and our responses and our expectations. Because we see surely as we read through this that the culture around Israel had influenced them. And I hope this morning just to, to use that and as well as to back up just a little bit and see a broader understanding of what's happening in and through this passage throughout all of really the Old Testament history and really the lens I want to use as we look at it is a lens of what has been promised and what has actually been realized. A theme of promise and a theme of hope. A theme of what they wanted and what they got and how they went about making for themselves the solution in in presenting a king. All of us experience this tension between what we hope for and what's actually realized in our lives and we always find that there's a gap. A number of years ago, um, when we were, um, I was director of Campus Crusade up in University of Nebraska, there was a, a season in our home where we had one computer, and it was being occupied a great deal by my wife and my kids, and I realized I needed to get another one. Um, saved some money, was ready. The time, the day came that I would eagerly, looking forward to getting a new computer, us being an Apple family. I hope those aren't bad words to any of you. Don't cut me off in case any of you don't like those. But we're an Apple family. I thought I'd get a little iBook. Some of you are shaking your heads and going, oh yeah. And so we got a little computer and I went down to the computer shop to order the computer and I was looking forward to this. So I put in the order and he says, it'll be a few days. Well, I went anticipating I would come home with the computer. So it'll be a few days and we'll put the order in and your computer will show up and, and we will call you when it comes in. Well, I, I waited and it was, it was a tough wait throughout the week. Every day I would call the computer shop and say, is it in yet? And I would say, no, it's not in yet. The next day I would call, is it in yet? No, it's not in yet. They would assure me each time, we will call you when it comes in. But I wanted to make sure that they didn't forget me. And so I called, and then the day came, the computer came in. I got the phone call, and, or did I call them? I can't remember which. But anyway, um, it came in. I dropped everything and went down to get my new iBook. I've been waiting for this. I brought it back to my office, you know, bring it out of the package, and behold, there it is. I've been waiting for all these many days <laughs> for this computer to get. I opened it up and fired it up and was all ready to go to work. There was one problem. It wouldn't work. There was something wrong with the operating system and the, so I, it was absolutely useless to me. And there I sat, eagerly awaiting the use of this new computer, only to be left hanging. The gap between what I expected and what I actually got was great. It, it just so happens it wasn't a big problem. Uh, some of you anti-Apple people are going to say, that's your problem right there. But <laughs> that's the problem. And the, and the Apple people, I think, are in almost tears right now. But anyway, it, it was a small problem. It was taken care of. 
but there was a gap between what I anticipated and actually what I got. This tension runs through our lives, and this tension between what we anticipate and what we get runs throughout all of the Old Testament history. The promise that had come to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 2, that God, or Genesis chapter 12, that God would make a great nation. He would bless that nation. He would use that nation to be a blessing. The promise that ran throughout Genesis where it's expanded, that he would bring, and bring them into a land that would be prosperous, a land that would be peaceful, a land that they could dwell, this people and this nation could dwell, runs in the background of, this, of the chapter we're looking at, runs in the background of 1 Samuel 8. The promise that God had given them and the fulfillment or the desire to see that promise fulfilled is working in and behind this chapter. And in fact, all of the Old Testament. If you run throughout Old Testament history up to this point, the promise given to Abraham, you see it grow as the, as the nation grew. And yet this promise, you might ask questions, will it really be fulfilled as they come and they're in captivity for the 400 years in Egypt? And then God sends a deliverer and there's this hope, this hope of fulfillment as Moses comes and delivers the people miraculously out of bondage, out of their slavery. And you see them move into in through these miraculous kinds of ways where God provides for them and leads them across and through the Red Sea. And yet you see the promise again, you might ask questions again, where you see the hearts of the people turned against God and you see the hardness that's there. And you see the faithlessness that's there and God says, these people do not know me and for 40 years they wandered and God saw a whole generation die off and you would say, what about this promise? Will it be fulfilled? And how will it be fulfilled that God had given to them. And then you have the conquest period following that 40 years in the, in the wilderness that Bill has been walking us through where Joshua leads the people faithfully into the land. He leads them to take over the land that God had promised. And so there you see, oh, this promise is being fulfilled. And yet as Bill walked us through that conquest, we found that it wasn't fulfilled completely. Because even as Joshua sought to lead them into the land and to rid the land of their enemies, that didn't happen. It didn't happen completely. It didn't happen perfectly. There were still enemies that existed throughout the rest of the history of Israel that was there. And so the promise was continuing to be fulfilled, and yet it was not completely fulfilled even in the conquest. And then you look at the period following Joshua and this conquest, this period of about 350 years where judges ruled Israel. And if you were to read through the book of Judges in the Old Testament, you would see and you would certainly ask the question, is the promise really being fulfilled here? Are the people really being faithful? Is the land really being taken? Are they really serving this covenant God in this setting? And you would say, I don't know. Because you have cycles of sin and failure of the people. You have cycles of threats from their enemies and you have judgment of God. Then you have rescue that God sends to deliver cycles throughout this, this period of the judges. And you wonder, is this promise really being fulfilled throughout this season, throughout history? Is it unfolding in the way that God intended? And you would say, yes, it must be. And yet there's a tension there as the people would look up on that, as the people would sit and go, is it really being fulfilled? Are we really experiencing all that God meant us to experience? Or is there more? Or is there something else that we should do in order to, in order to bring that about? And so that leads us up to this period of, of 1 Samuel. Certainly what marks this period is the, the transition from, from the nation being ruled by judges 
by God through the judges into the monarchy, through this period where kings would be established. And for the rest of the nation, the history of Israel, we would see that kings would rule, that there would be a monarchy established that was there. And the trajectory is set from this monarchy. We see that there's two kings that are, that are um, focused on between um, Samuel 1 and Samuel 2. We look at Saul, first and Saul is king, and then we have David. Saul, who was not a faithful king, who did not follow after God. And then we have David, who was a man after God's own heart, who was far from perfect, but did lead the people towards faithfulness. Not perfectly, not completely, but did lead them towards the heart of God in the way that he led. And so this sets us up, and the whole trajectory of the rest of the Old Testament is set by the king that's established, by this longing to have the fulfillment of the promise, to see the land, to see a leader who would lead them into covenant faithfulness, this leader who would lead them into security and safety, who would fight their battles for them and lead them in in this way. And yet that would not be fulfilled until later. As we come here, we need to ask the question, how will the promise be fulfilled? How will the hope that the people have be completed? How will they experience that? And we're going to look in this chapter, we see that they sought to do it on their own. They did not trust God in their attempt to see this, full, this uh, promise fulfilled. See that, that in this period of the judges, they had, not, they had not done well, but Samuel is the best example of success in this season, in this period of those who would lead. Samuel had been miraculously set up by God. If you remember the story how Hannah brought him to the temple, he was a miraculous birth. She could not bear children, and God gave her, him to her. She brings him to God, presents him to him, and, for the re- and then he is raised in the temple by Eli. He becomes the, the, the judge of Israel. Even as Eli's sons, who were evil, could not lead, Samuel is the one that God puts in place who would lead the people of Israel and lead them well. Because just prior in the chapter before chapter 8, that's chapter 7, he leads them into repentance and he leads them in victory against the Philistines. So he had done a good job and yet here we set in this, in this scenario, in the situation in which his sons do not follow after him. That the hope of leadership is not good. That they're, the hope of the way that, that his sons would lead in verse 3, it, it tells us about them that yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. So the hope of leadership is, is slim here. And so the people want to do something about it. Remember, at the same time, they still have enemies inside and outside. So poor leadership, no hope of future leadership. Enemies inside their country, enemies outside And so their situation is real. And what I want to do this morning as we look at at chapter 8 here, and we look at this theme of promise and fulfillment, we look at the promise that God had made to them, I want to look at how it is that they went about accomplishing that promise, fulfilling it in and of themselves, using, if you will, their own means, their own mechanisms to do that and not seeking God. First of all, I want to look at the legitimacy of the request, which is really more like a demand. To see that the, the demand of God. Secondly, I want to look at what they were focused on. What was it that they saw? Thirdly, I want to look at the blindness that ensued. That followed what they were focused on. That they could not see straight. And then finally, I want to look at their consequences. The consequences they as a nation felt. That they as a people 
felt, and then certainly we'll apply that. We'll see what does that mean to us as we read the story and we see what's happening there. It's, it's easy and we'll see that we can relate very well with how they respond to their circumstance. First of all, their, their situation, the legitimacy of the request. Verses 4, 5, 6, and 7. You see where the elders come to uh, Samuel. I'm going to read these again. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. You're old, that's not a good start, and your sons don't walk in your ways. And then they go on, Now, what do we do in light of this? Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all that they said to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. And you see the situation is real. As I mentioned, there's a real gap in leadership here. His sons will not lead in the same way that he did. There's a real need in the the fact that there's enemies around them, within and without. They need somebody who will lead them to fight their enemies. And in verse 20, you see, that's exactly what they want a king to do. They want a king who will fight their enemies for them, that will go before them in battle, and be their protection, that will be their security. And so for them, the only answer, the only solution is a king. As they approach the situation, it's real, it's it's legitimate, And the only proposal that they put forward is one that they have devised themselves. In fact, the place that this came from wasn't even their own idea, was it? It tells us twice in this passage that they looked to the other nations, that we want a king just like all the other nations have. And you can imagine them looking around and seeing the prosperity or the blessing or the strength of the nations around them and saw that they had kings. And then they thought, hmm, I guess that must be the answer. And they looked at themselves and said, well, what's wrong with us? What's different about us is we don't have a king. So I guess that's our answer. And so you see that as they presented that to Samuel, they presented it to God, that there was a demand there that they wanted a king. That was the answer to their solution. But there was no real surprise to God. In fact, if you go back a few chapters to Deuteronomy chapter 17, you see there, it's interesting that God even gives instructions in that book on the occasion at which Israel would come and want a king. The, the point at which Israel might want to come and install a king, and God gives them permission. God says, okay, this is allowable. This is permissible. But the, the point there, we're not going to take time to look at that, but you'll see if you read through that, that there were restrictions that were placed on the king. That that, that passage in Deuteronomy 17 actually restricts what the king can do, which would be unheard of in those days. That the king would be restricted in any way. But God says there will be restrictions. Restrictions militarily. Because in that passage you see that they restrict the number of horses that he has. There's restrictions politically in the number of wives that he would be able to accumulate and have. So that his heart wouldn't turn away. That he wouldn't use that political power through the intermarrying of other, other nations. At the same time, they were restricted in the monetary value that he could accumulate. Restricting them in the amount of wealth that he could have. And so you see, as God restricts the king in what he can do and have, there's a message that's sent to the king in that situation. And what's the message is? Who's the real king? The message is who's the real king? God is. And he says, don't forget, even as you rule as a king, that I am your real king. And so in that, in that situation, as God says, this is allowable, 
But you don't see the people appealing to this. You don't see the people in 1 Samuel 8 even acknowledging the nature by which God gives the instruction. They don't understand the restrictions. They just want a king. What kind of king? A king like all the other nations have. We want what they've got because they must have it figured out. And if we get what they have, we must be better off because they look like they're better off. And so the demand, even though their their, um, request is legitimate, even though what they want is certainly, if you will, it's, it's legitimate that they would want it. The way they go about it is wrong. And so you see their focus in the middle of this. Their focus is not on God. It's not on pleasing him. It's not on asking him, what would you have us do? It was on, if you will, devising a plan for themselves, bringing it into their own hands and doing what they see is fit. What they seem, what seems to them to be the most obvious thing to do. And their focus was, and for God's issue, it wasn't the monarchy. The issue wasn't the king. What was at issue was their hearts. And you see in verse 7 there where God says, when God says to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me. They might, to them, it might have appeared on the surface that it was just a change of political structure. You know, we're going to move from the judge into this monarch. It's just a change of political structure. But God sees clearly that what it is was ultimately was a rejection of him. That their hearts were ultimately reluctant to trust him as the ruler over them. And they wanted someone else. Someone else that they could control. They, they devised for themselves a system, a new structure that they could have some control over at least they thought that they could so their focus was on a solution that they could take care of their salute their focus was on being rescued out of their predicament and not focus on following after God not seeking his face and so their focus was wrong we also see that their assumptions were wrong because you see in the situation here they thought by the very nature of changing political political structures that all their problems would be solved. They thought by just the new, this new monarchy would change and would solve our problems. Their assumption was that just a, a change in the structure would bring about a change in their lives. Earlier on in the book, um, Hophni and Phinehas, the evil sons of Eli, as they're going into battle against the Philistines, they take with them and they place in front of them the Ark of the Covenant. Remember, the presence of God. And there seems to be this notion by them that if they have this lucky charm, if they have this in front of them that goes before them, the very nature of its existence in our battle will guarantee us victory. And you see there they misunderstood the nature of what it was. They thought that salvation would come from this structure. They thought it would come from having and bringing this Ark of the Covenant before them, but they forgot or they did not understand that this represented the very presence of God, that it actually could go without the presence of God. And so they misunderstood the nature of it, just like later on here, they're misunderstanding the nature of the monarchy. They think it's a solution. Their assumption is that this will change everything. The bottom line is that it wasn't. They forgot where their salvation really came from. They thought their salvation would come from this and not ultimately from God. And so we see that their focus is wrong. Legitimate need brings about a demand, brings about a change in focus upon what they wanted to do. Their solution brings about a kind of blindness that you see throughout this passage. 
in the section 10 through 18 in this, in, uh, this chapter, you see that, that God comes and says to Samuel, warn them. Obey their voice, bring them a king, but first you have to warn them what will happen if they install a king. Warn them and caution them on what will take place. And you see in this section where Samuel says, this is how your lives will change. You think it's going to be better, but in fact, this is what the case will be. And just a note, as Samuel walks through these, I'm going to just walk through it piece by piece here. It's not extraordinary kinds of things that a king would do. These are very normal things that a king would bring about. When he rules, he rules completely. And here's a few of the things. The operative word throughout this section in verses 10 through 18 is take. What does the king do? He takes. Does he give anything? We're not sure. But we know for certain that God says what this king will do when you place him in power is he will take from you. He will take from you your sons. He'll put them to work at war. He'll put them to work on his in his land, to work his land. He will put them to work making implements of war. He will use them as commanders in the army. He will take your daughters. He will put them to work for his service. He will take the best of the fields and the vineyards and the the olive orchards. He will take all of those things from you. He will take a tenth of your grain. He will take your servants and your cattle and your donkeys. He will take your livestock. This is what he will do, and you will see in verse In verse 17, he will take a tenth of your flocks and you will be his slaves. And that day you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. You see that in the end what they get is their own enslavement. And Samuel here tries to warn them, but you see the response in verse 19. Even though he says, do you see what you're asking for? Do you see what will happen when you go after a king? You think he's going to do this, but you will get nothing but slavery to him. And they say no in verse 19. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said no, but there shall be a king over us. There will be a king. We will have a king no matter what. And so the formula goes like this. The formula is the legitimate need or desire. A real situation that God acknowledged. They had a need for leadership. A real promise that God had offered them. A promise that they would have a land. A promise of leadership who would lead them into faithfulness. A promise of one who would protect them. Who would secure for them the kind of place that God would have them have. That he had promised to them. Real desire. Real real promise of God. However, that is informed as a solution to that. They're informed by the other nations. They look around and they look for the answer. It's informed by the culture around them, if you will. And they looked everywhere else except for God for the answer. So they looked to the world. And at the same time, they were influenced by their own sinful and rebellious hearts. They did not want to trust God. What was easy about a king? It was something I can do. And in fact, if you read through how Samuel ruled, he was a a king who ruled in an attempt to please them. In a way, they could control him, and they did control him. They controlled him to get what they wanted to. And that's where the rub is. What we want to do is the exact same thing as they do. We want to be able to control the outcome. We don't want to trust God. We have a resistance built in automatically to trusting what God would do. To trusting how he would lead us and guide us. And so we see that in the end there was a blind demand for a king, no matter what the costs were. They said, we will have a king no matter what the costs. Legitimate need, 
a legitimate promise that God had given them, a focus not on God but on, on the solution brought about a blindness which led them into this, this demand for a king no matter what the cost. And you see that their consequences were real. Verse 18, And in that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer in that day. When we seek to meet legitimate needs through illegitimate means, there will always be consequences. When we seek to meet legitimate needs through illegitimate means, there will always be consequences on our lives. God would not, will not rescue them from the consequences of their own decision. They would become slaves to the monarchy. They would become slaves to the king that they put in place, to the system that they thought would save them. They thought this king, the structural change, would bring their salvation. But again, they forgot from where salvation actually comes from. And here's what's interesting. The very thing they thought they would free themselves from, they actually got. In the end, they would lose the very thing they sought to protect, their freedom. They sought to protect who they were and their their freedom before God. And they, in the end, became slaves to him. As we read through this, we can't help but, but see how sovereignty and human decisions are, are woven together, that in God's sovereignty, he says, you can make your decisions, and I will not rescue you from them. You will live them, and I will ordain the decisions that you make. They don't threaten God's sovereignty. In fact, they uphold them. Our decisions apart from God do not threaten God's sovereignty, but our godless decisions do threaten us. Our decisions apart from God, it doesn't threaten God's sovereignty, but our godless decisions ultimately threaten ourselves. The very fact that they didn't even check in with God on this decision on what they should do tells us about their hearts. And in the end, they were threatened by their own decisions and God gave them what they wanted. In the end, the consequences can be seen in a couple ways. One, slavery, as I've mentioned. They were enslaved to this king. And, and the second one, I think, is even more important for us. By implementing a solution that they devised, they missed out on seeing how God would have provided for them. They missed out on how God would have taken care of them. What would he have done? He knew that they needed a leader. What would he do? And they did not And they missed out on seeing how God would care for them in the circumstances. And as a result, they settled for a substitute. A substitute that they made themselves. That they manufactured themselves. In fact, as a result of those around them, they said, this must be the answer. And they ran after those things. So as we think through this scenario, you see that there's a legitimate need. We see that their focus is on resolution. It's on solution. It's not on seeking God See, there's a blindness that follows, and we see that there's this demand in the end and the consequences that are real. And the question for us today is, what's this mean to us? How does this apply to us? What's the implications? And I hope, as we even just read through that and walked through what was going on there, we see that our own hearts do the exact kinds of things. We find ourselves in real situations, and we desire to get out of them more than anything else. We desire more than even seeking God. We want to be rescued And so we go about manufacturing our own ways, our own means, and we think a structural change will bring that about. Well, first of all, there's a few things I just want to mention here for us. First of all, there is a real tension for us between God's promises and the fulfillment of those promises. There really is a gap that we live in. God has promised something better for us. 
And we will experience it, but we live in between the time that it's, it's been promised and the time of complete fulfillment. We get little tastes of it along the way, but it's real. We find ourselves in real situations that we see that this is real. And there's real pain and there's real hurt. There's real fear. There's real insecurity that we feel. Just like Israel's situation. Who will lead us? Who will lead us in the battle? Who will protect us? Who will provide for us? Who will take care of us? Was there questions? The same questions for us. We shouldn't be surprised at the difficulty around us though. We shouldn't be surprised as we find ourselves in the middle of those situations. They're real. Things break down at the most inopportune time in our lives, don't they? Just the time you've got some money saved to do something fun, something breaks. In our home, we've got a few cracks in the walls. Any of you have cracks in your walls? We just finished the family room, and my wife was all excited about it. It's beautiful, great, all this, and guess what happened? About a month later, there was a huge crack started right down the law from that settling stuff that goes on. We live in a real world where things break. We live in a real world where that's real, and there's not much we can do about it. We suffer illness, great and small, from a cold to chronic illness to terminal illness to types of things that will take our lives. People let us down, relationships that we hope will be, that will save us, relationships that we hope will be good for a long time, ultimately find that they fizzle and there's tension in those relationships. Leaders fail. Can't help but watch the news and realize that that happens. Leaders fail everywhere. And Lord, help us to lead well. But that is true as we live in the middle. Finances are short. Relationships are strained. We can go down the line of the real circumstances in which we find ourselves in. And in those times and periods, it seems like there's an infinite distance between what was promised and what we actually realize. Just like Israel. The Bible gives a word to this. It's suffering. It's suffering. It's not getting exactly what we were made for. Anything that violates our design, as a friend of mine has said, is suffering. And so we can feel it to small to great. And for all of us, it it is real. But the question is, what do we do with those periods of time where those things are going on, where that gap is real, where that gap is there? Well, our tendency, as we see from Israel, first of all, we can see the solution in the wrong form. We can think the solution is a structural change, a king. In our language, we might say, what I most need is a new blank. Fill in the gap. (laughs) What I most need is a new blank. If I just had a new, I mean, 50 things could be filled in there, my life will be better. And we misunderstand the real nature of the problem, right? The real nature of the gap. We think the gap's going to be filled by this blank. The new car, the new computer, the new house, the new whatever it is. And yet we find that it won't. We think we see the problem all wrong. Instead, it's a spiritual one. And God calls us ultimately to see it in that way and to trust Him. He calls us to turn our hearts towards Him and not towards these other things. Nothing wrong with those things. Sometimes... It is. Sometimes you do need that. But the issue isn't really that, is it? Because you've got that thing. You filled in the blank only to find, like me with my little computer, it didn't quite do the trick. What I most need is to trust God. And so we see the, the solution in the wrong form. And what happens is we dislocate our trust in God and our need. And oftentimes we'll draw a line down the middle of our lives. And on this side of the line, on my line in my life, I deal with this and I take care of it on my own. 
On this side of the line, it becomes God's issue. And we'd separate the two. And it's only until it gets really bad that we really trust God. And you see, Israel did that. They said, this is a political problem. We're going to deal, it with, a, we'll deal with it with a political solution. They didn't even inquire of God. They didn't even ask him, what would you do in this situation? What would you have for us in this situation? So you see, they dislocated their relationship with God from their need for him. Thirdly, our tendency is to look to the answers of our culture. We look around and we say, what else is everybody else doing? How did they solve this problem? What answers do they have? And we import that in and we say, well, that must work for me. And God says, no, there's more here. I want you to inquire of me. And as one writer um, put it this way, he says, our proposals and solutions can be completely reasonable, clearly logical, obviously plausible, and at the same time utterly godless. Let me state that again. Our proposals and solutions can be completely reasonable, clearly logical, and obviously plausible, and at the same time utterly godless. When we live in this world, the idolatry of our culture seeps in. And it seeps in and it gives us answers that we think are godly. And yet we need to to check in and see, God, how would you see this? And in the end, there's consequences that we experience as we run down this road of solving our own problems in our own ways, of manufacturing a solution that's from us and not ultimately from God. These are, and we suffer real consequences when we decide or make decisions apart from God. And like Israel, we find ourselves unable to see and effectively blind. They wanted a king, and God gave them a king. God gave them what they wanted, but they didn't necessarily like it in the end. C.S. Lewis writes in The Magician's Nephew, he's got this line, and he says, he writes, everyone gets what they want. They do not always like it. And that's true for us. The things that we run after we'll ultimately find do not satisfy. We'll ultimately find, oftentimes, we will be enslaved to those things that we run after. And we'll miss out on seeing how God would have provided miss out on seeing what he would do in those circumstances. I know there's a myriad of ways that we can apply because we see the need and desires in our lives consistently. But the question is, what do we do then? We find that we're propensity to this kind of blindness, to running after these things, to listening to our culture. A couple things I want to just mention. First of all, in simplicity, it's the gospel. In simplicity, it's seeking God's face. How is it that we live in this gap between what's been promised and what's fulfilled? We wait on him. We seek his face and we wait for how he will fill the gap with what he desires. We acknowledge there's a real need there and we ask him to inform it. How do we understand our need here? Help him to define that for us. Secondly, we need to be aware of the way that the culture influences us. The way that it gives us answers. It's given us messages all the time that are not true. And oftentimes we're so surprised by the difficulty because our world says, well, you deserve something different. Or somehow you should expect something different. But God's word says no. How is it that we combat the influences of our culture? We live in it and of course it's there and it's real. God's word, relationships with others, advice from others, talking with others. And prayer, we're able to, to, if you will, seek God's face and hear from him and have him inform us more than the way that the culture would influence us. We also need to be aware of the reluctance and the resistance that we have in trusting God. That we would much rather trust something that I can control 
than trust God whom I can't control. I'm resistant to having to trust him and wait on him because I want to do it in my way, in my time. And that was really the real issue, the real issue with Israel. They would not wait on him. They wouldn't have it his way. They wouldn't have it his time. In the end, we're called to wait on him and accept his solution. So the conclusion for us this morning and the questions we ask, how is it that we will be able to wait on him in the midst of these times, these seasons, these gaps, if you will, between what's promised and what's realized? Who will enable us to wait in the tension? Who will cause us to be faithful in the midst of that, to trust him? Who will keep me from running after other substitutes or manufacturing things of my own making instead of trusting in God? Who will close the gap between what we long for and what we hope for. Who's going to do that? Well, there's a really easy answer. You hear it all the time. It's the person of Jesus Christ. Israel's demand for a king ultimately rejected the real king. The monarchy was established, but it would prove no more effective than the judges would be. In fact, it would only bring slavery. Their kings would do that. And in the end, the monarchy itself would be disbanded as they were deported into other countries. But it would set up the the scenario in which a new king would come. That in the fullness of time, the new king would show up in a way that none of us could quite imagine, who would show up in the form of a baby, who would show up without any political power, who would show out with any military power, who would be born very humbly, would be born as a servant, would come and not enslave people, but would free people. And he would do that by laying down his own life, for his people, being their good shepherd and removing them from the slavery of their sin. Jesus Christ is the one that we look to. He's the one that will enable us to live in the tension between the already and the not yet. He's the one that we wait for to provide for us in the midst of that. And in the end, he's the one that we wait for his returning. We long to see him. He will close the gap. It's not completely closed yet, but he will. And as we wait, it will produce not just a desire to be, to have resolution. Not just a desire to have our, all of our problems solved, but a desire to know him and to see him. It will remind us in the, in the meantime that we're not home yet, that there is something more that he has for us. And then the waiting will drive us to a sure hope, to the faithful one, the one who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that you sent your Son that through the monarchy we see the pictures in the, the Old Testament of the of faithless kings. We see the true king in Jesus Christ. We see him coming and dying for us on our behalf. We see the forgiveness of our sins that's granted to us. We see the release from the slavery of our sin. The punishment of sin and the power of sin has been removed because of him. He is the true king that we long for. And yet, Father, this morning we do confess of the ways that we try to bypass you in trying to solve our own problems. And we ask that you would keep our eyes fixed on Jesus Christ. That you would remind us of the foolishness of building and designing these means of our own. Help us to remember that our greatest need, most of all, is you. And to seek your face and to wait on you. We're grateful that you've promised that in due time, at the right time, you will strengthen us At the right time, you will give us exactly what we need. And in the end, we will stand in your glorious presence. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
Please stand and, uh, for the benediction. The response to the benediction is, um, I will follow Jesus the King, hallelujah. As we say we're going to follow Jesus the King, we're reminding ourselves that there's no one else to follow, that there's no other substitutes, and that we will seek Him and Him alone for our salvation. Receive this as God's benediction. Now to Him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to His power that is at work within us, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. And all God's people said, I will follow Jesus the King. Hallelujah.